0: Welcome to episode 10 of Breaking the Ice, I'm Rebecca
1: and I'm Connor, and we are your co-hosts.
0: Today on the show, we're looking at the future of energy production in Canada's North. It's well known that of all the regions of Canada, it's the North that is going to feel the most severe effects of climate change.
1: But despite that fact, it's a cruel irony that the North is also the region most heavily dependent on fossil fuels to power its homes, businesses and industries. Almost all northern communities run on diesel power.
0: And this isn't just bad news for environmental reasons. It also means that communities are burdened with the heavy costs of importing fuel from the south. Moreover, the climate, isolation, and large distances covered by Northern Energy grids means that blackouts and disruptions to services are common.
1: Luckily, there's a team of talented researchers in the North working to find solutions to these issues. Today in the program, we're talking to two individuals from Northern Energy Innovation, a research program at Yukon University. They work on several projects with communities in all three Northern Territories, including research on how to better integrate renewable energy into Northern energy grids, ways of storing energy for times of high demand, and more.
0: Northern Energy Innovation's NSERC Industrial Research Chair is Dr. Michael Ross. We are fortunate enough to welcome to our program. Dr. Ross has a PhD in Electrical Engineering from McGill University. He previously worked with Hydro Quebec on their Northern Energy Project before making his way north to work at Yukon University.
1: He was also joined by James Tlem, a research assistant at Northern Energy Innovation. James grew up in the Yukon and has experienced the problems with energy in the north firsthand. We're excited for you to meet them both. So let's get to the interview. Thank you for being here today. Welcome to Breaking the Ice. Why don't we just start and both have you, be, both of you introduce yourselves briefly to our audience. Just a few lines about your personal professional backgrounds and Michael, maybe we could start with you first.
2: Sure, thanks, I'm Michael Ross. I'm the industrial research chair in Northern Energy Innovation at Yukon University. Uh, my background is in electrical engineering. I, ha- I hold a bachelor's of applied science, a master's and PhD in electrical engineering, specifically focusing on electric power systems. Uh, I worked at the Quebec Research Institute uh, and on the BCIT microgrid system before coming up north. And right now I lead a research program out of UConn U that works very closely with the electric power industries across the territories and also funded by the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council.
1: And uh, James?
3: Uh, yeah, my name is James Twinn. Uh, I am a research assistant for Michael working at Northern Energy Innovation. I, have a mechanical engineering technologist's diploma, and I'm currently pursuing a bachelor's of engineering.
1: Thank you very much. Um, So the first question we'll just ask Michael is what is Northern Energy Innovation? And can you briefly outline some of the work that you uh, do
2: there? Sure. So I guess the best way to describe what we do is based on where the money is coming from. So our our research is funded 50 percent by the electric power utilities across the territories and 50% from, like I said, the federal government through the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council. So what that means is our program is directed by the CEOs and the managers of the electric power utilities. So Yukon Energy Corporation, Northwest Territories Power Corporation, ACO Electric Yukon and Kulig Energy Corporation. And together the CEOs and the managers determine the research areas that are most pertinent for the northern energy industry. But because we are working out of Yukon University and we are funded by the federal government, all the research that we pursue is meant to be openly available and accessible to the public. So while we pursue highly highly technical research areas, we want to make sure that we advance the uh, we want to make sure that our results benefit the North as best as we can. So while utilities as an example, uh, are interested in integrating renewable energy into isolated diesel-based communities, We partner and work with the communities as well on their renewable energy projects to make sure that it can be installed in a responsible manner by going through all the technical analysis and addressing any concerns or limitations that may arise. We also look at novel technologies. For example, we have a project looking at electric thermal storage implementation in partnership with Yukon Conservation Society in Whitehorse to see if, if that can meet the needs of the Yukon. We are an isolated system in the Yukon. We're not connected to Southern electric power grids. And so power in has to equal power out at all times and in the wintertime when we have a peak. We the Yukon Energy Corporation has to meet that peak so maybe electric thermal storage can provide a means of charging at night when the when the demand is lower and then using that heat. During the day when people want it the most we're also working with Northwest Territories Power Corporation on a variable speed generator project to see whether or not. This technology can not only integrate more renewables but operate more efficiently over a wider spectrum of operation. We're going through many other projects as well with beyond beyond the meter demand side management um, and and even looking at how the integration of electric vehicles as they come to the north, whether or not elect our electric power system can handle them without causing any issues.
0: James, can you tell us a little bit about your contribution to the project?
3: Sure, no problem. Um, right now, the biggest project I'm working on is um, the mo- modeling some of the remote communities, their electrical grid. Um, Michael can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there are five different isolated microgrids in the Yukon. Um, we've done projects already in Old Crow and Beaver Creek. We're doing projects this summer in Burwash Landing and Destruction Bay. Uh, that's the community I'm currently working
1: on. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask you about these communities. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the communities you're working in. How big are they? And I suppose we can't just put all the communities in the north into one basket. So the needs between them vary. So how 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 are these communities different?
2: Sure. Uh, yeah. So so you're absolutely right. Essentially, when you see one remote community, you've seen one remote community. They are all very different. They all have their unique challenges. Uh, as an example, we we've worked with. Uh, the Gwichin First Nation on the Old Crow Solar Project, and that's the only flying community in the Yukon. So the level of challenges of what they can incorporate is limited to either what they could bring up on a a plane with a small runway, or if and when they are able to build an ice road, when they could transport everything up there. So even the logistics of what can be implemented is very challenging. However, they do have to fly in their diesel, so it does become... You you get a better return on investment with implementing a locally sourced renewable energy project. Whereas if we look at Beaver Creek, that's along the Alaska Highway, that's the furthest West community in Canada. It is one of the one of the hotspots of stopping right before crossing into Alaska. And so, yes, they do have a winter peak in terms of uh, demand for the community is highest in the winter when when there is no heat or light from the sun. But in the summertime, you, there is also a peak in the in in uh, in the demand, just because that's when the hotels are full with tourists coming through non-COVID times. Uh, and each community has their own ambition for a renewable energy project. Where, say, for example, in Old Crow they implemented solar. Same thing for Beaver Creek. But in the the Kewanee First Nation territory, Burwash Landing, Destruction Bay, that James talked about, they want to integrate wind in their system. And there are unique challenges to wind in the north let alone the rime icing that you see, but a lot of manufacturers have dropped off the smaller wind turbines because you get better economies of scale with a larger wind turbine, which are somewhat on the order of 900 megawatts or larger, which is significantly bigger than a community uh, that has a peak of say 500 kilowatts needs. And when we deal with communities, it could range so far in the range of say, for example, 8,000 in terms of uh, Iqaluit, or it could even be as small as 92, which is what is in Beaver Creek. So there's a wide range of needs, wide range of demand profiles, wide range of available renewable profiles, and very different needs of what the community wants and what the community sees as a a successful project. When meeting with with Chief Tram of Vantukwitchin Government, for his old Crow Solar project, he sees a successful project as elders picking berries in between the rows of solar panels as the diesel gets turned as the t- diesel is off because the solar panel that the, the solar plant that is owned and operated by the community is serving all the electrical energy needs of the community locally and in a renewable way in Beaver Creek, White River First Nation doesn't have self-governance and what they would like is they would have a locally sourced economy where they could use that money to support local initiatives themselves and help grow their capacity. So every community does have different needs and every community sees different successes in their community energy project.
1: James, do you have anything to add on that question, um, given your experience growing up in this area? I think Michael
3: has eloquently said everything, Um, dealing I would mention differently, size from community to community varies greatly. Klawanian, Burwash Landing, Destruction Bay is one of the smaller communities, about 90 people to 150, depending on the time of the year. Um, one of the microgrid services, only one client and old Crow, I believe has upwards of 250 people they service. So, you know, the needs can vary greatly just from that aspect as well.
0: Um, Michael, this question we sort of had for you, but James, feel free to jump in as well. Um, We wanna focus on sort of incorporating renewable energy into the energy grid, but before we sort of jump into that, we're wondering if you can sort of lay the groundwork for our audience and tell them what energy in the North consists of now, what are the main sources of power and what are some of the main problems that Northern residents face at the moment?
2: So in the north, like I said, there isn't a single electric power system that's connected to the North American grid, and that that means a few things. Uh, One, we do not have any import or export capability so everything needs to be done locally. But not only that, we need to make sure we have the necessary controllability and reserves, so that as the demand changes, if we if we look at Ontario as an example. Uh, the independent electricity system operator and if you go to their website you could see what the demand profile is and you could see what the prediction is when you have a community of 90 people when the school comes online that's a big jump in the demand whereas if a school were to come online in toronto you wouldn't necessarily see that big of an influx so you have a lot more volatility and there's a lot more Uh, issues with regards to predictability of the demand and and we need to make sure that if we have to make sure if we have to make sure that power in equals power out at all times, we are able to have controllable dependable resources. So throughout the north, we have three hydro grids so three high voltage systems that are essentially powered by hydro generation, we have one in the Yukon. And two in Northwest Territories, one north of Great Slave Lake, one south of Great Slave Lake. Other than that, there are 55 communities throughout the territories that are exclusively powered by diesel or thermal. There are a couple natural gas powered communities, but it's it's almost uh, it's almost exclusively diesel. But some of the challenges that we have in the north is a power outage down south is an inconvenience, whereas in the north, it could become very critical very, very quickly. In 2016, I believe, there was a a fire in the Pangertung diesel plant in Nunavut and Northwest Territories Power Corporation flew in by helicopter, well, flew in a diesel generator into the community to make sure that the community maintained uh, power or so that the Keelig Energy Corporation could maintain power to their community. And that one day cost them $8 million. We, We don't have economies of scale in the north. That's one of the main challenges are the if the territories were a country, it would be the 12th largest country in the world. And we have less population density than the Sahara Desert. And so, and when you have such high reliability requirements, you want to make sure that you could depend on whatever system you you use for electricity and especially in isolated systems where you cannot it, it it economically doesn't make sense to connect them through a transmission system just because it's so they're so far apart from each other as an example in Nunavut Nunavut is literally twice the size of Ontario with 25 communities so when you don't when you can't connect them electrically and when a lot of renew locally sourced renewables such as wind and solar can be viable but they are intermittent. You can't tell the wind to blow. You can't tell the sun to shine. That that creates some additional challenges with integrating. And that's what our research program is intending to do is to explicitly identify those challenges, see in each and every single one of the community, because we can't make a generic statement. Every community is different. Study every community that wants or or work with the community to study how much renewables can you integrate in a responsible manner because a power outage If you if you install solar and there are 30 more power edges a month, that's not a good news story for the community or the utility. So see how much renewables you can integrate. Identify what are the barriers that are preventing a larger amount of renewables to be integrated. And making sure that the community has as much background and information so that they can make a responsible informed decision that is in their best interest.
1: Yeah, I just want to pick up on something you mentioned about the problems that come with blackouts. And I want to direct this question to James because having grown up in the North yourself, I'm wondering if you have any personal experiences with problems coming from energy and electricity or blackouts?
3: Um, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Blackouts uh, are a general issue. Um, They don't, depending on where you live on a transmission line, like more near the end and, and how up to date the infrastructure is, you can see blackouts happening maybe you know, once a week, once a day has become a little less common. But if, you know, we, I remember specifically, we lost power in the middle of, you know, the winter once, and we didn't have a wood stove in our house. So we just had to, we had to leave, go somewhere else. Uh, Cause we couldn't, we couldn't heat the house. Um, blackouts are, an issue power surges are another issue. Reliability on the lines isn't always the best. So with power surges, you get a lot of interference uh, with electronical device, electronic devices. Uh, I remember once we had our home computer, the power supply on it fried because of a random power spike.
0: Yeah. Thanks for sharing, James. It's so helpful to hear. From sort of a firsthand perspective. I know it always brings some life to stories, and we hear facts and figures so much. So, thanks for that. I wanted to uh, build off something that you were um, mentioning, Michael, about so the reliance on diesel. And I think we hear about that a lot the reliance on diesel in the north um, as being such a big problem. And I sort of wanted to learn more about why that is a problem. You sort of alluded to the fire in the diesel plant and the extreme cost of making sure that that community had power. Um, and I'm curious if this sort of reliance on diesel, a main issue is that communities aren't self-reliant. It relies on a lot of imports um, and in emergency situations like that, something coming in to help. So I'd be interested in to learn more about why diesel power is seen as such a big issue in the North.
2: You're absolutely right in terms of self-reliance is a big issue um, where we are dependent on fossil fuel coming up to the North to power what we need. I mean. It's in a lot of ways, it is, there is no golden key solution. If there was, everyone would do it. It'd, it'd be no brainer. I mean, yes, people could talk about uh, uh, conspiracies and I'm not saying conspiracies don't exist, but the reality is it's always a trade off. If there was a more, if there was a locally sourced, economically uh, inexpensive and and reliable resource, we would almost have to go with that with that route but because there isn't, there's a trade-off between a reliable, controllable fossil fuel source versus renewable sources and the costs therein. So there is an issue with reliability where we in, we in the North want to be self-sufficient. Not, it, it, it's not always a matter of pride. Sometimes it's a necessity. So last, not this past winter, but the winter before, there was an avalanche down on the South Klondike Highway that was bringing in uh, liquefied natural gas for Yukon Energy to to use to meet our winter peak. This came out after the fact in an ATIP report, but we were one day away from not being able, or Yukon Energy was one day away from not being able to meet the winter peak. And it got pretty cold last winter. It was was, uh, down to minus, it got minus 35, minus 40. And that one avalanche by having that dependency on imported fossil fuel was a really close call into the entire Yukon that's connected to the integrated system
3: I believe michael that year watson lake was the coldest place on earth at minus 50 degrees they were colder than
2: mars yeah that's right and and so when you're dependent on on these imported fuels it it hel- it doesn't one, one, not only is money going down south, and if we want to develop a northern economy, we need to make sure that the money stays in and circulates within within our community, as opposed to, I don't want to necessarily bleeding down south, just because it is it is a um, we are paying for a co- commodity and service. So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But if we want to develop a locally sustainable economy, having locally sourced fuel is very important and in terms of self sufficiency. Another thing that's important is the, the cost of the OpEx. I know if you look at renewables and versus diesel, the operating expenditures are much cheaper for renewables because the sun is the sun will be coming back day in, day out, the wind will be coming back day in, day out. Not as predictable, but it will it's it will be coming back. Whereas fuel, unless we have that continuous supply getting shipped up, it won't still be continuing. Another aspect is is the climate change aspect of it and we in the north are experiencing climate change uh, at twice the rate of people down south and it, and it's very very evident when you're in high permafrost areas where the permafrost is thawing because of the effects of climate change and you see a lot of buildings and a lot of infrastructure that's sort of sinking into the ground we have a school up here in ross river that is sinking because they because the permafrost is thawing and so when per capita in the north, we are emitting more carbon emissions than anyone else in Canada, just because we are so reliant on that in order to sustain our, our livelihood, even in terms of heat in the winter make We want to be proactive and we want to change things for the better. And so this is an opportunity for us to do so.
1: I think that's I think the point you made about building an economy in North is, is really key because that, I think that's where renewables renewables obviously come into it, because then you control the resources themselves. You control the uh, the means of production, I suppose. But I'm wondering, why is it so difficult to incorporate renewable energy into the northern energy grids? What are the challenges and the barriers faced by that? Uh, maybe, James, you could lead us off with this question and then uh, Michael, you could bring it home.
3: Um we talked on it earlier it's a large large part of it is the remote communities uh old crow is a fly-in community only Uh, they're lucky sometimes in the winter they can create an ice bridge Um, but just getting resources there alone is is half the battle another large aspect of it is the size of the northern territories and the density uh, people are so spread out. Um, I believe the C dam in British Columbia is one of the largest uh, hydroelectric power plants on the West coast. And they power, their power goes all the way down to Vancouver and Victoria. Half of their power gets lost in the transmission lines, the inefficiencies in the transmission lines alone. So to try and do something across all the territories,
2: it's just too large.
1: Michael,
2: do you have anything to add? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm thinking about how to frame this in different perspectives because um, I'm, I'm originally from Scarborough, and so coming up in the north has opened my eyes into how, how things are done differently. And I don't, when I say differently, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just if you're an engineer proposing a project in Toronto, there, you you could focus on the technical aspects exclusively, whereas in the north, you have to look at the social aspect, the technical aspect, the engineer or the economic aspect, the environmental aspect, the policy aspect. They're all inter, intertwined. So me answering your question uh, right now is going to take a little bit of chunks off of different perspectives as to what are the challenges. My bread and butter is the technical aspect, and from a technical perspective, you could think about. There are two main aspects that are preventing it, uh, which is essentially making sure that you have the, oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. If you're integrating renewables onto a diesel-based system, which is where you'd have the biggest benefits because you're offsetting diesel as opposed to offsetting hydro, as opposed to the hydro system. But with diesel generators, you need to make sure that you have enough up and down reserve so that if the if there was a sudden gust of wind, or if let's just say the, sun, the wind were to die down, the diesel generators are still online to make sure that what you, when you plug into your outlet at home, you still see 120 volts, 60 Hertz, much to what James was saying earlier about about power surges. You wanna make sure that they, those could be mitigated. And it is the utility's responsibility. No, it's not just, Sorry, not just the responsibility, it's their mandate to provide safe, reliable power to their customers So it's their job to make sure that you do connect at 60 Hertz, 120 volts. And when you add in a whole, if you add in an uncontrollable resource, and when I say uncontrollable, like I said, you can't tell the wind to blow, you can't tell the sun to shine. It adds more volatility and more risk into the system. So from When integrating into isolated systems, what we're finding, the two biggest issues are the reserves, making sure you have sufficient reserves with the diesel generator that's online and able to respond instantly, as well as minimum loading constraints, where a diesel generator below 50% of its its rated capacity, its efficiency significantly drops off. And so it's not good to operate the diesel generator below 50% of its nameplate rating.
0: Um, One question I had sort of builds off that topic of demand, and I think demand is something that I know I take for granted of. I don't really put a lot of thought into, Um, and I think it's really interesting to think about how we can accommodate for periods of higher demand versus periods of lower demand. And we see that you're doing a project looking at electrothermal storage and how that can be used to store energy for periods of, say, higher demand. Could you tell us a little bit more about what this looks like and what this means?
2: Yeah. So, so right now, actually, most homes in the Whitehorse area, this electric thermal storage project is predominantly focused in Whitehorse. Although we want to see how it could work in even remote communities with our integrated renewables, or or in Northwest Territories on their hydro grids. But most heating in Whitehorse is done with with oil heating. Just there is there is some uh, uh, stoves for for wood heating, but most of it is oil and we get it shipped up and that is good for the electric system. If we just look at the electric system, it's good because that doesn't increase the peak for electric heating demand, but new homes and new installations are almost exclusively going with electric heating as their primary source for heat. But that's causing an issue because when we do have a winter peaking issue, As an example, this past winter Yukon Energy and Yukon government spent $4.1 million renting diesel generators that they only intend to use for 20 days, let alone the fuel. So if more electric heating comes into the system, the higher the peak will be because it is when it's dark and cold when people want energy the most. So the idea between for an electric thermal storage unit is it is still electrically heated. But instead of having your electric baseboards on when you need the heat, you use the electric heating to heat ceramic bricks. So there are these bricks that are enclosed in the heating elements that could store the heat for 24 hours. It's sort of a diurnal technology. That way you could pre-charge them overnight. So use the electricity at night when the demand is lower and then either passively through radiant heating or hydronic through through water or even a forced air system you could take you could use that heat to to spread out throughout the house when you want it so the idea is you the the resident will not be affected with their ther- with their thermal comfort will still have heat available because the bricks will be heated will be preheated But it will not affect the winter peak. So it's it's it has the promise of being the best of both worlds, of being a cleaner form of heat while not impacting the peak of the system. But right now, that's one of the projects that we are pursuing right now is to investigate from a scientific standpoint of does it actually meet its promise and does it actually meet the needs in the north?
1: And so what are you finding so far? Is it living up to the promise?
2: Uh, so so there were some installations of electric thermal there there are approximately uh 40 participants from with Yukon Conservation Society. Um I believe that there are about a dozen participants that have the electric thermal storage units installed. And so this summer we're hoping to get a lot more uh, or by we Yukon Conservation Society is, is hoping to get a lot more installed. But we just had the one winter of baseline data to, to record. So we can't make any conclusive recordings just yet. Uh, but there are interesting anecdotes with regards to the installation, let alone with the tr- with the technology. I could give you a, an example of one of the interesting anecdotes is when installing the, these electric thermal storage units, the local utility, ACO Yukon, which does the distribution in in Whitehorse, they're finding that they have to upgrade their infrastructure in order to meet the demands of an electric thermal storage unit. So ACCO essentially sizes their transformers to the residents, assuming that not everybody will have all of their circuit breakers at maximum capacity and on at the same time. So as an analogy, the water pipe coming from the city into your neighborhood isn't assuming that everybody's pipes are on at the same time because it gets really expensive if that were if that were to be designed for and it would be an underutilized asset. But right now, using that analogy, right now people are installing electric thermal storage units or electric vehicle chargers on their on their households. It would be the equivalent of not only was it was the water pipe not sized to meet everybody's loads on at the same time, right now people are installing water parks in their backyard. So there's a concern, especially since Yukon government wants to wants to have 4,800 registered zero emission vehicles in Yukon by 2030. This is a big concern where the Yukon distribution system was essentially designed and implemented during World War II, And now we have new high demand loads on the system. These are additional issues that we're finding that we have to address in order to meet our objectives.
1: One, uh, one, one recurring theme I think has been coming up through this whole conversation is about how different local communities are in the North. Um, so I'd like to open this question up to James first. And when you're working with these local communities, how do you go about taking the needs of specific communities into account and building those community relationships while you're doing your work?
3: Community engagement is a very large um, mandate that NEI is always striving to uh, achieve. Um, I believe Michael has almost, you know, weekly meetings uh, or is in contact with the communities whenever anything needs to be discussed. Uh, we are in the process of trying to set up a community walkthrough in in one of one of our communities projects we're doing um, to confirm if the electrical grid data that was given to us by the power utility is accurate. Uh, A large part of that right now is dealing with COVID, uh, how many people they want to bring in the community, arranging with the community and the power utility uh, a proper date so that everyone can come out there. And we're fortunate sometimes when we can drive there, um, whether it's within a day's travel from Whitehorse or or whether you have to fly or go into another territory. Uh, Every community, like we said, has different needs. And essentially, just an open line of communication with them almost at all times is is how
2: we try to accommodate their needs. Yeah. So, so exactly what James said in terms of we want to make sure that we meet their needs, and we have to we have to put that as a priority. And sometimes that's a challenge where we have funding to do X, but the community wants to do Y. And the reality is is that we have to make sure our priorities are aligned appropriately, and there are fantastic resources out there in order to make sure that the work that you're doing actually meets the community's needs. For example, Inuit Tapir Kanatami has a, a, an Inuit strategy on research, a document that I would highly recommend everybody read. And there's a recent peer review article from uh, members of, of Kwani First Nation of towards reconciliation, 10 calls to action to natural scientists working in Canada. Uh, If you read these calls to actions, they're almost common sense, but not everyone follows them. And what I mean by that is the priorities are misaligned. Everyone within Northern Energy Innovation has had opportunities for personal and professional career growth, but have avoided that in order to make sure that it meets the community's needs. And as an example, when we we're working on the Arviat uh, Clean Energy Project uh, with with the hamlet of Arviat and NR Store. The wind turbines had to be located four kilometers away from the airport. That's that's Navcan rules, but that's close to where a lot of hunters and trappers had their cabins. So we so NR Store had to do a proper community engagement not just meeting with elders in the community making sure that it's respected making sure that it's integrated but also understanding that the hunters and trappers are affected by this and they have a big there that there's a big uh, um, presence from the hunters and trappers organization making sure that they have approval of the project making sure that Even if you wanted to incorporate wind into the community and even in from a technical standpoint from an economic standpoint it makes sense. If the community doesn't want it in their community. They have you have to respect that. It's not a matter of convincing them one way or another. Making sure that the community can make a decision can make an informed decision and respecting what the decision is, is a big important is a big importance for these projects.
0: Thanks, Michael. I think yeah touching on the time it takes to do effective and proper community engagement is something that is often forgotten or is put into plans at a much smaller scale than it needs to be. So acknowledging that it does take time to build these relationships and that's important. And just because a project ends as well doesn't mean that relationship has to end there. Uh, Sort of connected to what I think you're starting to talk about is Finding people in the community to help with the skilled labor that is required. I know a lot of the times in mining projects, we often import laborers in who are specialized in a certain area. And I know we recently did an interview with some architects in, in Yukon, and they said one of the key problems they found was that they couldn't find the skilled labor they needed in the community. And they'd love to hire people in the community to do the work, but they're just not there. Um, Is this a problem that you've sort of run into while working in these small communities? I know, as James, as you mentioned before, there's communities as small as 90 people.
3: Skilled labor is definitely, has always been an issue. Um, I think what it comes down to, though, is are you willing to teach the local community? Um, A lot of the mining industries they take they take the initiative to engage with the local communities and see what interest they have in learning and teaching their local community members if if they want to if they want to start a mine in their community like if if their members will work community. I know that there has been a project in the Yukon to install a fiber optic line from Alaska and they have engaged with uh, members of Kiwani First Nations Band to train um, members of the community to actually help dig the trenches and lay the fiber optic lines. So to go into a community of 90 people and expect there to be skilled laborers who know how to install a wind turbine or run maintenance on solar panels it's a little closed-minded but to offer them the opportunity to learn to to teach them i think there's a, a want the communities would be willing to do that I think Michael would probably have some words to say on that.
2: Yeah, James. James is absolutely right. There's a every every community that we go in, there's there's a uh, an interest for for developing that capacity locally and and ensuring that could stay within the community. From from our research standpoint, we are still trying to balance our the technical rigor and the jargon that we use with it being with our results being sec- accessible by the community. As an example. If I call a light bulb a shiny, glowy, round thing, it might not be interpreted as we know what we're doing to the utilities who require that technical rigor. But if we use the technical jargon to communities, I mean, even technical non-experts may not use the same terminology that we use, like, if, if we say GIS, that could mean gas insulated switchgear, that can mean global information system, that can mean a whole bunch of different things to many different experts as well. And so balancing being accessible as well as accurate with using the proper terminology is something that that we have found somewhat challenging. Uh, but also with, with regards to training in the community, yeah, James is absolutely correct. There's always a need and an interest of developing that local capacity, much in the same way of developing a renewable energy project, builds that local sustainability and that that internal economy as opposed to importing it. And, and I'm just gonna use an example that's somewhat different just because it's it's uh, just fresh off my meeting with uh, Vantuck Butching government this morning, but uh, they would like to have some a local operator maintainer for the old pro solar project. But some of the challenges that they're facing is they require a high amount of skill that may only be required one day a week, one day every two weeks, because the ideal scenario is for, for a solar project, you don't need a lot of maintenance. So, how do you how do you incentivize an individual that's highly skilled to stay in the community for one day's week, one day a week worth of work when there are opportunities down south? So even when you train people in the community, you need to make sure that they could stay employed in the community. And so there are additional challenges to not just training people, but making sure that, that they have enough capacity and enough jobs to stay.
1: So in your overall research, in your overall research, especially with integrating renewables into Northern energy grids, I'm wondering how does Canada compare to other Arctic countries in this regard? Have, are there other Arctic countries who have done uh, significant research on how to incorporate renewable energy into their energy grids?
2: So interestingly enough, Uh, Well, like I said before, once you've seen one community, you've only seen one community and there are a lot of a lot of research programs that are investigating this. But you could look at, uh, say, for example, Iceland that has geothermal opportunities right at their fingertips. It's different sets of challenges, different sets of solution. There are wherever you go, wherever there are diesel generators, there are restrictions and limitations. Each utility does require to provide safe, reliable power to their customers. But to say that one solution, even, even the Old Crow Solar Project, probably isn't the best solution for other communities. And just like the Beaver Creek Solar Project probably isn't the best solution for other. There are unique considerations in every community. So what we, the best thing that we could do is look at case studies and look at the holistic context as to why the solution makes sense. What was good? What was bad? What are lessons learned? Uh, even meeting with Montaukwich in government, they want to reach out to everybody and let them know of the lessons learned and the struggles that they had to overcome or the things that they wish that they had known from to begin with so other communities don't fall through the same barriers because every community will inherently fall through their own unique challenges and barriers. But it, but there's no point in relearning the same mistake. Um, but what's interesting is that right now, uh, Gray which is a large international group for power system engineers, as with World Bank have an initiative to electrify Africa. And with, with this initiative, they're seeing a lot of similarities to what is being implemented in isolated remote systems in Canada or also in the Arctic to see what are the similar challenges, what are the similar uh, considerations that, that they can implement. As opposed to going to a brownfield with an existing diesel system that we want to integrate renewables onto, what if we could have an open greenfield and start from scratch? What opportunities are there? What, what could we go with? Obviously, there are different extreme environments in terms of up here, we have the extreme cold. Down there, they might have extreme heat or other logistic considerations. But knowing the lessons learned and the context in which those problems exist will help make the, the, the electrification initiative successful.
0: I'm conscious of our time. um, So I wanted to sort of turn it back to the two of you to see if you had sort of a a final message you'd like to give to our audience. Um, I know some people listening will be not familiar at all with energy in the North, some maybe a little bit more, but you had sort of a synopsis piece you would like to share.
3: Um, Final message wise, I would just say, it's all about the people. You can't have enough community engagement The Yukon and Northwest Territories and none of what Michael said earlier have less a smaller population than the Sahara Desert but they're also the the people living here. If you want to do projects with them they're the people that you're working for.
2: Yeah uh, I I, I would say something similar to James in terms of uh, I went through schooling as an engineer and we, I know stereotypically we may not have the best uh, reputation for being people person, but um, nothing happens without people. And it's very important to make those connections and to ensure that as you move forward, if you work in the North, and don't get me wrong, there's no shortage of problems to 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 address in the North. And we're open and receptive to people who want to help out and develop those win-win scenarios because th- that can happen. But make sure that when you, when you leave, when your project is done, think about the legacy of the project because whether, when you retire, when you're done, that community will still be there. And the legacy of that project and your impact on the community will still be there. And aim to have a positive impact for the community and make sure that the legacy of the project is positive for that community. And another thing is, yes, I'm proud of, of our contribution to a lot of these projects and helping them move forward, but it's not our project. And the communities really should feel proud of their accomplishments. And when I see what's on my plate, I'm overwhelmed with things. I couldn't imagine what's on their plate. With, with a population of 90, everybody has so many portfolios on their plate that it's incredible how much they could get done on top of a successful renewable energy project. So I just wanna make sure that the credit I give credit where credit is due. I think
1: that's an awesome way to end things. Um, last week when we spoke, you highlighted too that the fact that this is a project that's showing that the North is showing resilience in solving its own problems. And that's a really great example of that. We do have a, a lot of great talent in the North that, uh, and it's great to see it being used for uh, such a good uh, for a good cause of integrating renewable energy. So I just want to thank both of you again for your time. This has been a really awesome conversation. I think we, me and Rebecca have both learned a lot
2: Great. Thank you very much. And thank you for the opportunity. It was great chatting with
0: both of you. Thank you.